0: We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. Before we go to our sermon this morning, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Would you bow your head with me and uh, let's, let's lift our hearts to God together. Lord, there is nothing that we have in this life. There is nothing that we will have in the life of the world to come that we haven't received from you. Lord, you're the giver of every good and perfect gift. It all comes down from you, the Father of lights. We confess that it is by your kind and gracious providence that we can live and move and have our being. You give life and breath and everything, and we owe it all to you. And all that we have, we give back to you in worship today. We ask that you would speak. Speak now as, as we, your people, have much to learn. We, we lack the wisdom that's required to live as you, you've called us to live. But your word gives us a promise that whatever we lack, whatever we don't know, we can come to you and we can ask you for it. And you will give generously without reproach. So we ask, Lord, give us wisdom, because we know that really that's just another asking, another way of asking you to give us Jesus. We confess that He is the wisdom and power of God, and Him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So show us Jesus, show Him to us in Your Word today. We ask, Amen. We are continuing our series this morning in First Timothy. So if you would turn in your Bible with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. We'll be looking at the first seven verses of chapter 2. We remember, of course, that this is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a young church leader after whom the letter is named. And the context of the letter is is Paul urging Timothy to contend with the false teachers who had crept into the church there in the city of Ephesus. He says to Timothy at the very beginning of the letter, charge these people, charge these false teachers to not teach any different doctrine. They are not to teach anything that contradicts or undermines the truth of the gospel. Now, just kind of speaking on a personal level here, it's not difficult for me to put myself in Timothy's shoes because this isn't the kind of thing that, that you necessarily envision for yourself when you go into vocational ministry. No one says, I'm going into ministry because really I enjoy conflict. No one in their right mind desires to be embroiled in a heated confrontation. And yet that's exactly where things were headed for Timothy. He was on a collision course with these false teachers. There was no way around it. He was going to have to confront them. And this must have seemed to him, A daunting task. We we wouldn't blame Timothy for feeling somewhat intimidated by this. After all, he was a a young, inexperienced church leader. Yeah, he had spent a lot of time with the Apostle Paul. He had seen Paul deal with these kinds of things, but that's different than dealing with it yourself. That's very different. Timothy wasn't quite as familiar with, with how to handle church conflict on his own. So it's not hard for us to imagine Timothy reading the words of this letter and thinking to himself, where do I even begin? This seems like such an uphill battle. Like how how do I even get started? What's my first move here? And the thing that I love about the Apostle Paul is that he fully anticipates this. He anticipates that that these questions, that these anxieties would be swirling around in the mind of Timothy. He, he, he's not at all out of touch with how Timothy must have felt about this, which is why Paul doesn't give Timothy a very difficult assignment just to leave him hanging. Now, in the text we're going to look at today, Paul actually begins to lay the groundwork for how Timothy can begin to counteract what's happening with these false teachers. Of course, Paul doesn't do this by offering Timothy a silver bullet solution. He doesn't offer a step-by-step program. He doesn't offer a dissertation with airtight arguments that would shut down these false teachers. That's not what Paul does. Instead, Paul starts by reminding Timothy of what the church is called to do. He knew that's what Timothy most needed to hear. Timothy needed to be reminded that the church is called to make Jesus known to all men. That's the mission of the church. It's our mission in every age. It's it's to hold the truth of the gospel high so that everyone would have a chance to hear about Jesus. Jesus. And this, this mission, this, this understanding of what the church is called to do, it, it stood in direct contrast to these false teachers that Timothy was supposed to confront. Remember, all these false teachers wanted to do was sit around and speculate about nothing. That's what Paul says at the beginning of chapter 1. He says that, that they had wandered into what he calls vain discussion. I think essentially what these false teachers wanted to do is they wanted to turn the church at Ephesus into an episode of Seinfeld. Right? Can't, can't you see it? A church about nothing, right? And Paul tells Timothy, if, if people start to follow that example, that's exactly what the believers in Ephesus will become. They'll become a church about nothing. They will have no future because pointless speculation, vain Discussion, these things don't transform anybody. They don't reach anybody for Christ. Instead, all these things do is make the church insular, self-absorbed, and irrelevant to the world. So starting here in chapter 2, Paul is going to offer Timothy some insight about how he can keep the church on mission. Look at with me starting in verse 1. We'll read through verse 7. Paul writes, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good. a preacher, and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. This is the word of the Lord. I want you to see this morning from these verses that the church of God is the appointed means by which Christ advances his gospel to reach all The church of God is the appointed means by which Christ advances his gospel to reach all men. Christ does this in three ways. That's that's what I believe that this text will show us, that there are three distinct ways that Jesus advances his gospel into the world through us, the church. The first way he does this is by our dependence upon him in prayer dependence upon him in prayer. Paul says to Timothy at the very outset of of chapter 2, if you want to keep the church on mission, if you want to keep the church on mission, start with prayer. Begin with prayer. Shut down the vain discussion and tell people that they better start a discussion with the living God. This is what we see in verse 1 where Paul says, First of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all. Now, you'll notice here that Paul uses various words to describe what he's calling for. Supplications, intercessions, thanksgivings. This is not because Paul is trying to prescribe some sort of rigid order of praying, as if you have to go down a list saying, okay, I've, I've done supplication, now I can start on prayer. Okay, I've done prayer, now I can start interceding. No, that's not what Paul's doing. This isn't some legalistic formula. What Paul's actually giving us here is he, he's telling us that these things are what prayer is. These are the things that we will naturally do when we go to God in prayer. We will ask him, To accomplish things in our lives, we will supplicate and intercede. When Jesus was asked by his disciples, Lord, teach us to pray. Jesus said, pray like this. Say things like, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us of our debts. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Just notice how realistic Jesus is actually being here. He knows that when we we go to God in prayer, we're going to ask for things. We're we're naturally going to petition God to move and to work in our lives in specific ways. Paul says that the other thing that comes naturally when we pray is thanksgiving. When we pray, we are acknowledging that every good and perfect gift comes from God above we're recognizing that, that every blessing that we experience in life comes from His good and gracious hand. and We respond to this reality in prayer by, by using the breath in our lungs to breathe back to Him our gratitude. So all these things, supplication, prayer, or intercession, thanksgiving, these are the basic language of prayer. Because really, all these things have something in common. What they have in common is they remind us of our dependence. Prayer reminds us that we are dependent creatures. We are limited. We are finite. We often find ourselves weak, needy, and helpless. This is why God gives prayer to us. It is a gift. It is a means by which we can come into his presence and be before him. What we truly are. Paul starts this way. He begins with prayer because God's mission is perhaps the place where our, our dependence upon him becomes particularly obvious. Just think about what God is calling us to do when he recruits us for his mission. Listen to the things that Jesus says about the mission of God and our role in it. Jesus tells us, make disciples, preach to the lost, be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. Friends, these are things that that cannot possibly be done apart from the intervening power of God. Without the power of God, there are no disciples to make. Without the power of God, preaching is ineffective and, and basically a waste of time. Without the power of God, we are doomed to be failed witnesses. We won't even become witnesses at all. Well, think about Timothy. Think about how this applied to his situation. Timothy was responsible for a situation over which he basically had no control. Right? He was appointed to lead this church in Ephesus, and there were people in this church who were actively undermining him. They were actively sabotaging him. Timothy must have looked at this situation and felt incredibly helpless. And Paul writes to him in this letter to tell him, you know what, Timothy? That's actually true. You are helpless. So why don't you begin here? Begin with prayer. Prince Paul is saying this because he understood that prayer is absolutely essential. There is no outpouring of gospel power. There is no mighty move of God that does not begin with prayer. It is the very first work of God's mission because it reminds us that the mission is just that. It's God's. It belongs to Him, not us. God is the one who advances the gospel. Jesus reminds us of this when He says in the book of Matthew, I will build my church. The mission of God moves forward by God alone. This is why Paul begins with prayer. But Paul not only tells Timothy to pray, he also tells him who to pray for. The end of verse one, Paul says, pray for everyone, pray for all people. Of course, Paul doesn't mean by this that we need to go go through a list of names of every person in existence. Like, we can't pray for every living person. That would be impossible. Nobody can do that. So what Paul must mean is that we should be praying for all kinds of people. There is no type of person that we should leave out of our prayers. Most of us, of course, pray regularly regularly. For our loved ones. And that's great. You should be praying for your loved ones. You should be praying for your family, for your friends. But let's also remember the words of Jesus who said, if you only love those who love you, or maybe we could, we could say it a little differently for our purposes. If you only pray for those who love you, what reward do you have? What good is that? I mean, even the tax collectors do that. So if we're going to follow what Paul and Jesus are telling us, we cannot limit our prayers to those who love us. We cannot limit our prayers to those that we prefer to be around and spend time with. Scripture teaches us, pray also for your enemies. This is something that Jesus himself taught us to do. He said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. But this isn't just something that Jesus taught. This is something that Jesus himself modeled. When he said from the cross. Of those who were persecuting him. And brutalizing him. And killing him. Father forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Jesus himself. At the hour of his greatest suffering. Prayed for his enemies. So that person who maligns you. That person who slanders you and mistreats you. that, That person who sabotages you at every turn. Pray for that person. Do not omit them from your prayers. No, include them in your prayers. Bring them to God in prayer because they need Christ. They need his grace to break through and transform them. Friends, no one is so bad that they don't belong in our prayers, because no one is so bad that Jesus cannot reach them. Paul says in verse 2, specifically, we should be praying for our governing officials. Now, I'd imagine that as Timothy is passing this along to the congregation there at Ephesus, that maybe it was, maybe it was met with a wave of groans. Maybe there were some people in the room there that day when Timothy said this, we should pray for our governing officials. Maybe some in the room rolled their eyes. Maybe there was that, that smart Alec in, in the back of the room who raised his hand and said, does praying the imprecatory Psalms count? No doubt Timothy had some people squirming in their seats because listen this doesn't come naturally to us this doesn't this isn't the first thing that we want to do when we think of our governing officials instead if we're honest what comes most naturally when we think of those who govern us is cynicism right it's not prayer No, we're we're cynical because we've we've been given plenty of reasons to view our governing officials in the most negative possible light. As the saying goes, so we believe that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. But even if that saying is true, even if we can point to countless examples of it, That does not absolve us from what Paul is instructing us to do here. We are to pray for all men. All men without exception. And that includes our governing officials. They may be corrupt. They may enact laws that we as as Christians find to be unjust. They may have a personality that rubs you the wrong way. Paul says, I get all that, but still, pray for them. Pray for your governing officials. This is actually something that the earliest Christians were very serious about doing. One example of this seriousness is Clement of Rome, who was a bishop of the church in the latter part of the first century. Just listen to how Clement of Rome prayed for the governing officials of, the, of his day. He prayed. Grant to them, O Lord, health, peace, harmony, and stability, that they may blamelessly administer the government which you have given to them. Lord, direct their plans according to what is good and pleasing in your sight, so that by devoutly administering in peace and gentleness the authority which you have given to them, they may experience your mercy." Friends, that's quite amazing. It's quite amazing when you think of of the context in which that prayer was prayed. Do you know how brutally the Roman Empire was treating Christians in the latter part of the first century? It was horrific. Clement of Rome had every reason to hate his governing officials. He had every reason to have nothing but disdain for them. Instead, what we find here is we find him praying God, would you allow them to experience your mercy? God, would you give them peace and stability? That's what Clement of Rome prays, that's what he wants for his governing officials. And Paul says that that's what we should want as well. We should desire that all men, including our governing officials, would experience the mercy of God. We should desire that they would experience peace and stability. And these desires should drive us to pray for them. Just notice Paul's reason for this. He says that when our governing officials are at their best, when they are Ruling according to the will of God, it means that we get to lead the kind of life that God wants us to live. A life that is peaceful and quiet, godly and dignified in every way. According to scripture, this is a good thing. This is is something that we should want. We should aspire to live this kind of life. That's what Paul tells us elsewhere 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he says that we should aspire to live quietly, to mind our own affairs, and to work with our own hands so that we may walk properly before outsiders. This is something that we see in the prophecy of Jeremiah as well. God is, is speaking to the captives of Israel who found themselves In exile, they were miles and miles away from home, stuck in Babylon, the very last place that they ever wanted to be. And God tells them this, seek the welfare of the city to which I have sent you and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your own welfare. Paul says in verse 3 that this is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. When we pray for all men, when we pray for all kinds of people, it's for our good, it's for their good, and ultimately, it's for the glory of the Lord, our God. It it pleases him. It honors him. It brings him glory when we depend on him for what we need. It brings him glory when we depend on him to move his mission forward. And that's exactly what happens when we pray. We are dependent. That's the first way that Christ advances his gospel through us. It's by our dependence upon him in prayer. Now let's look at the second way. Verses four through six. These verses show us that Christ advances his gospel through us by our confession of his exclusivity. Our confession of his exclusivity. The interesting thing about what Paul does in the lead up to these verses is he makes a very inclusive statement in verse 3. That God our Savior desires for all to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So just as we're told that we're supposed to pray for all kinds of people, now we're being told that God desires to save all kinds of people. This means that his kingdom is multicultural. It's multinational. His kingdom includes the rich, the middle class, and the poor. He invites educated people into his kingdom. He invites uneducated people into his kingdom. There are people from sprawling modern cities that belong to the kingdom of God. There are also people who belong to the most remote villages on the face of the earth who also belong. There is no type of person, in other words, that God has left out. The doors to his kingdom are wide open. And yet, there is only one way in. There are not many ways to God, as some would have you believe. No, salvation, Paul says, comes only by the knowledge of the truth. This is what Paul says in verse 4, and he he tells us what this is, what this knowledge of the truth is. So he follows a, a very inclusive statement, immediately with a very exclusive statement. He says that the knowledge of the truth begins with the confession that there is only one God. The Christian faith, as you know, I'm sure, is stridently monotheistic, a few moments ago we said the Nicene Creed together. How did that creed begin? I believe in the one God. I believe in one God, in only one God. It believes this way, or it begins this way for a good reason. Because this is the all-encompassing premise of the Bible. This is, this is the foundational truth on which scripture is resting. When God speaks to us in his word, he says things like this. From Isaiah chapter 45, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. That's exactly what Paul is asserting here in 1 Timothy. Yes, salvation is offered to all men, but there is only one God who saves. And Paul does not leave us to wonder who this one God is. He says that this one God who saves is the king of the ages. He is God, the immortal, God, the invisible. He's the blessed and only sovereign. The Lord of lords who who dwells in unapproachable light. He's the one who no one has ever seen or can see. Paul says to this God belongs all honor and eternal dominion. Friends, there is only one God. But Paul goes even further than that. It's not just enough for for Paul to say that there's one God. Paul must also assert that this one God has appointed one mediator. Verse 5. There is one God. There's one mediator between God and men. And that one mediator is the man Christ Jesus. So just as there is only one God, there is also only one way to God. This is what Jesus said in John 14. He he says he is that way. Jesus alone is that way. That's, That's the claim he was making when he said this to his disciples. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Again, don't lose sight of what Paul has told us already. Right, Everyone is invited. Everyone's invited to come to God, but no one can come to Him apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is the exclusive mediator between God and men. And of course, what what Paul is presupposing when he says this is that all men are alienated from God by default. Because of our sin, we are separated. From our creator. We are cut off from the presence. Of the one who is our very source. Of life. I point you back to the book of Isaiah. Chapter 9. Isaiah says your iniquities. Have made a separation. Between you and your God. And your sins. Have hidden his face from you. So that he does not hear. What Isaiah is saying there. Is that the problem for every person who has ever lived? Is that there is a breach? That's our greatest problem, that there is an infinite breach that has been put up between God and men. And it's been put up because we've sinned, we've rebelled. And this breach is something that we, in and of ourselves, are powerless to repair. There is absolutely, positively, no way for us to overcome the separation that our sin has caused. Which means that we need someone to overcome it for us. We need someone who has the power to repair what we have so catastrophically ruined. And Paul says that that someone is none other than the man... Christ Jesus. It's interesting to me that that the one qualifier he gives about Christ is that he is man. By this, it doesn't mean that Christ is merely a man. But what Paul is saying is that Christ is truly a man. Christ is, of course, we know the divine Son of God. He's the the second person of the Trinity, the one who is co-equal and co-eternal with God the Father and God the Spirit. We confess this in the Nicene Creed today when we said that the one Lord Jesus Christ is God from God, light from light, true God from true God. He is begotten, not created. This one Lord Jesus Christ is of the same essence of God himself. And what does the creed say next? What does it tell us but that this divine, immortal, uncreated son of God came down from heaven for our salvation. He was incarnate by the Holy Spirit. He was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary. The Nicene Creed says he became human, truly human. And not only that, not only is, is Christ truly human, As if that weren't astounding enough, the Bible also tells us that that Christ is the human that all of us have failed to be. There is no aspect of the human experience that he did not share with us, except for one thing he was never once guilty before God. Hebrews chapter 4 tells us that even though he was tempted in every way that we have been tempted, he was found to be without sin. He was found to be spotless. He was found to be righteous. The apostle Peter agrees. He says it this way. He says that Christ committed no sin. Neither was deceit ever once found in his mouth. Here's the point. In order for us to be reconciled to God, we need a mediator. That's our only And that mediator must be two things. He must be truly human, and he must be truly sinless. We need a sinless human being to represent us before God. We need someone who will stand in the holy presence of the Lord and say on our behalf, I will be their representative. I will be their advocate. I I will stand in the breach and be everything for them that they have failed to be. What this means is that right now, in this, in this moment, even if you have a mustard seed of faith in Christ Jesus, you are no longer separated from God. You are not cut off from his presence. He will not refuse you when you come to him. He will not shut his ear to you when you pray, pray your feeble prayers. No, he would never dream of doing any such thing Because the man, Christ Jesus, even now is carrying your name upon his loving heart before the throne of God above. And it is his good pleasure to say on your behalf, Father, receive them on my account. Do not turn them away because of their sin. No, receive them. Welcome them on my account just as you welcome me. That's what it means to have Christ. As your mediator today. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 5. He tells us that having Christ as our mediator means that since we have been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith. To this grace in which we now stand. Which means that we can rejoice in the hope of the glory of the one true and living God. And the only reason something so glorious and grand could ever be said of wretched sinners like us. Is because of what Paul tells us in verse 6. That the man Christ Jesus gave himself. As a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Let me tell you a story that kind of illustrates the meaning of this verse. Imagine with me that there were two men. The first man is a prince. He's in fact the greatest prince who has ever lived. He is unparalleled in his wealth. He is unrivaled in his power. He is unsurpassed in his virtue and in his wisdom. There was no one like this prince in all the land. The second man is a homeless drug addict. And let me be clear, this this homeless drug addict is no victim. He's not a victim of his circumstances. He has been given every chance to succeed And yet, what has he done? He has squandered every last opportunity because he prefers a life that is wretched. This is because he's hell-bent on his own destruction. Now imagine that one day this homeless drug addict by choice commits an unspeakable crime. He violates the law of the land in a particularly heinous way. And the only fitting punishment for this horrible crime is a gruesome, bitter, painful death. So this homeless drug addict is sentenced. And he is sent to a prison cell where he will spend his final days rotting as he awaits his imminent execution. As he wastes away in this prison cell, the news of him spreads his crime is so bad that now everyone, everyone in the whole kingdom is talking about it. He's the talk of the town. Eventually, the news of this reaches the prince. Now, how would you expect this prince to respond? I would expect him to conclude with everyone else that this homeless drug addict is simply getting what he deserves, serves him right. This is what he had coming. He deserves to die. But that's not what the prince does. That's not what he says. Instead, the prince is moved deep within his heart. His compassion is stirred. Mercy wells up within him. And this prince is is so moved by the plight of this homeless drug addict that he does the unthinkable. He does the inexplicable. He does something that scandalizes the entire kingdom. He decides that he will give everything he has to this criminal, including his own life. The prince will pay his debt in full, So that the criminal can be set free. The prince trades places with the homeless drug addict. And the prince goes to his death. While the drug addict now gains access to everything that belonged to the prince. The drug addict has access to his palace. The drug addict has access to his wealth. To his throne. Everything. Because the prince has spared nothing. Now that story, in its own very limited way, I'm not saying it's a, there's an exact correspondence, but in its own limited way, it scratches the surface of what it means for us to have Christ as our ransom. Jesus spared no expense. He did what was required in order to, to set us free from the penalty of sin. This is what the author Philip Yancey refers to as the atrocious mathematics of the gospel. It just doesn't add up, does it? Here we are, sinners, too damaged, too messed up, too guilty before God to even deserve a passing glance from the holy eyes of Jesus. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 3, that because we have turned aside, because we have turned from God and become bent in on ourselves through our sinning, we have all, every last one of us, we have become worthless. By all accounts, we are a bad investment. Especially when you think about what the payment will require. Romans chapter 3, again, the wages of our sin is death. That's the price of our ransom. That's the cost. It's certain death. But praise be to God, the man Jesus Christ decided to skip out on the cost-benefit analysis. He did not consider himself to be above what was required to ransom the lowest of the low. But he humbled himself, becoming obedient unto death, even death on a cross, so that he could pay the wages. Of our sin. This is exactly what he tells us in the gospel of Mark. He says the son of man did not come to be served. But to serve. And to give his life. As a ransom for many. Because of this. Because this is true. Because of what Jesus has done. Friends we now owe him everything. Everything. That's the only fitting response to Christ, our ransom. It's it's to give him every moment of our life, every breath that we have in our lungs, every resource that we have at our disposal. We now love and serve him because he first loved, served us. This is something that Paul understood. Paul got this, which is why in verse 7 we see the third way that the gospel advances through us. It's by our commitment to the work of mission. Look at the, the first five words of verse 7. For this, by for this, Paul is talking about the one and only God, the one mediator who became our ransom. For this, because this is true, Paul says, I Was appointed. For this I was appointed. In other words, Paul is saying that the one God, the one mediator who had ransomed him, has now recruited him. He has now enlisted him. Paul now obeys the marching orders of the prince who had paid his ransom. We see what this looked like for Paul specifically. Let's read on. He says, for this, I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and in truth. That was the specific calling that God had placed on Paul's life. Paul is describing that to us. Now, odds are your life will never look anything like the life of the apostle Paul. For one thing, none of us are apostles, so we can scratch that off the list. Most of us are not called to be preachers and teachers. Probably the majority of the people in this room will never go into vocational teaching or preaching ministry. But all of us, if we are Christians, whatever we are called to do by way of our vocation, all of us are called to do something for the mission of God. We are no less appointed for the work of mission than Paul was. And what that means is that the work we're, we're appointed to do, that work for every last one of us begins in the same place that it began for Paul. It begins with prayer. It all begins with prayer. And so I want to end the sermon today exactly where I started it. With a call to prayer. I want to call you to pray Here's what we need to realize, okay? Our level of commitment to the mission of God is measured by prayer. Our level of commitment as a church to the mission of God is measured by prayer. I once read a quote that went something like this. What a man is on his knees before God, that he is and no more. That could be said of individuals, but it could just as easily be said of a church. It could just as easily be said of us. We can either be a church about nothing like those false teachers in Ephesus wanted, or we can be a church on mission. The difference between those two is prayer. It's prayer. Who we are as a congregation is measured in how we pray. It's measured in how much we pray. It's measured in what we are praying for. So I believe that there is no call more important for us today than to be about praying. To pray specifically and with urgency for lost people. To pray for all men. To pray just like Jesus taught us to pray. I'll close with these words from Jesus in Matthew's Gospel. At the end of chapter 9, Matthew records this. Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, Matthew says he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless. They were like sheep without a shepherd. Then, the word then is very important. Then Jesus said to his disciples, he says this out of the compassionate overflow of his heart. He says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Friends, the disparity between the need for laborers and the actual amount of laborers comes back to what Jesus is saying. The fact is that the church is too often settled for mediocrity and praying. Maybe it's worse than that. Maybe at different points, the, the church has instead become insular inwardly focused in its praying. I mean, the book of James talks about this. James says you don't have because you don't ask or you don't have because you ask wrongly. You ask for the wrong things. You ask selfishly to to spend it on your own passions. Heaven forbid that that would ever be true of Emmaus, which is why I am pleading with you to see that we will never pray as Jesus wants us to pray until we have his heart for people. When Jesus looked at the crowds, when he looked at, at the people walking down the street, what he saw was lost sheep in need of a shepherd, and his heart went out to them. This compassion that Matthew describes here, this isn't some surface level compassion. It's not Jesus just saying, Well, that's too bad. Isn't that a shame? No, this is, this is Jesus being wrenched in his gut. This is Jesus having his heart shattered into a thousand pieces. This is Jesus yearning for the salvation of all men. And out of that yearning, Jesus immediately appoints his disciples to their first work. Pray earnestly. The need is great. The laborers are in short supply. So who among us is going to pray? Would you go before the Lord with me? Let's bow our heads, lift our hearts to him. Our Father in heaven, you you have called us out of darkness and into your marvelous light, and you have done this so that we might declare to the world the excellencies of Christ Jesus, your son. So to that great end, Lord, would you make us a church that is radically dependent upon you in prayer. Make us a church that prays often and earnestly for lost people. Make us a church that boldly and joyfully confesses before a watching world that Jesus is the only mediator. He's the only savior of the world. Make us a church that is faithful to your mission wherever we are, wherever we go. So we ask today, Lord, would you break our hearts for the lost? Would you give us the compassionate eyes of Jesus to see just how, the, how great the need is? And Lord, let that compassion produce within us a great sense of urgency for the task that is yet unfinished. The task of reaching all men with the good news that we believe and confess today. It's in Christ's name that we ask these things. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Amaze KC, located in Kansas City. For more information about Amaze KC, please visit us online at www.amazekc.com.